Hi, I'm James. And I'm Cairo. And this is Who Cares Wins, the podcast sharing inspirational stories about people who are caring for someone they love. Each week we're joined by a new guest who shares their story, and we try to do it with a smile on our face. But we never shy away from some of the darker moments. And if you find these stories helpful, please do subscribe to them and rate the podcast on your podcast provider. It makes a real difference to enable us to share these stories with people who are very often in a really challenging situation. Right, James, let's get on with the show. Well, welcome back, folks, uh, and um, happy Christmas if, uh, if if you're getting to that stage of uh, thinking about things already. Um Cairo, there's a lot of chat on the internet at the moment about um, uh, how Christmas can be a really tough time for carers. There's lots of pressure, but it can also be really isolating. Mm. Uh, what would your top tip be for um, carers around Christmas? Yeah, completely. I think the part of the problem is on almost every advert, every television program, you get the stereotypical family image of happy people sitting around a tree under with presents. And, and for so many people... That's just not the reality. And I think that can be really hard. So I suppose top tips, I think, firstly, you just have to look out for each other. You know, we all know there'll be people, and it, it may not be carers, it may be just for other people who, who find this holiday difficult. And, you know, the power in just reaching out to someone and saying, you know, just checking in, hope you're okay, um, can be really, really powerful. So yeah, just, just kind of keeping out, an eye out. You know, I know there's, a couple of people who struggle at this time of the year that I'm just going to drop a little message to. And, it, and, you know, it doesn't take much to actually have a real impact on someone's someone's day. And then the other tip would be uh, to, yeah, eat and drink plenty. <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably just that's probably just me. Well, you know, I'm, I think it's not just uh, carers who um, feel slightly ostracized by that image of the perfect family Christmas. I, I think my... Uh, my own family setup is uh, kind of described as idyllic in many ways, but that doesn't mean that there aren't a huge number of rows <laughs> and, uh, and and all the various things that come with that. So, so, I, so I think everybody is a little little away from that perfect image. I mean, rowing is almost part of the traditions nowadays. I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but talking of interesting family dynamics, uh, we spoke to Trisha this week, who is a yeah a foster parent, no, a foster mum. And that's and that will become clear why that's important. <laughs> Absolutely, because there's a really interesting um, part to this, which is that whenever we talk about uh, care, particularly in the in the formal sense of social care, uh, we we normally have in our mind uh, old people, basically, mm. and a real focus on the elderly. But actually, of course, a huge part of the uh, the social care world and the world of caring for people. Is uh, is actually about people of all ages and often with um, learning disabilities or physical conditions um, at all the different stages in their life. So I think it's actually really helpful that we uh, we were able to talk to Tricia and get a bit of expertise from something from that perspective. For sure, James. I mean, I've just listened to it and it's a fantastic interview. So um, let's hear it. Trisha, lovely to have you here. And um, tell us a little bit about who you've been looking after. So I'm going to reframe that completely straight away. So Go I am or was foster mum to my two kids. So I always say my kids came to me, not from me. And I'm going to call them Sam and Lucy. That's not their real mm -hmm. names, but I'm going to call them Sam and Lucy. So I got Sam when he was 10 and he's 24 now. And I got Lucy when she was eight and she's 20. 
So clearly they're not my foster kids anymore. Because yeah, big grown-ups. But they do still live with me, and they live with me through a scheme called Shared Lives, which is mm-hmm. was developed originally to enable kids who'd lived in foster care, disabled kids who'd lived in foster care, to to kind of continue living in that situation in a really kind of seamless way. So it's it's if I say it's adult fostering, that's really not what it is at all. But it just enables and because because adults you know in their forties and fifties can live in this situation, but it's a a situation for people who particularly want to live supported in a family situation rather than in a different way. But it was designed originally around kids who've been in foster care, enabling them to stay with their family. And my kids won't stay with me forever. That's not the the, the aim. It's the aim is to to be thinking about, you know, them moving on and, and, and Sam's thinking about that right now. So oh, exciting. And so they're both kids who they're both, I've said they're both disabled kids. They both live with a whole bunch of labels that tell you nothing about the very wonderful human beings they are. <laughs> and their labels aren't relevant, so I won't even say what they are, but they, sure. they are disabled young people. And they both live with quite substantial labels that mean they would be seen by lots of people as as needing to live in quite institutionalised in support arrangements, but that's not how we roll in our house. Yeah. So I've got I've got Sam and Lucy and then until three months ago, um I also had my mum. Okay. Who lived with me. But mum mum died three months ago, but she'd lived with me for thirteen years before that. So so it was a crazy house. And just me. Wow, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's so me and the the yeah, so kind of crazy house of four people. Four people, three cats, all mad as a bag of frogs. So <laughs> So it's good. I suppose a key question is how you got involved in foster care originally. Was it was this mm-hmm. was this the first time you'd done it? So, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about this a little bit later because I think there's an interesting role that that it's a tension between being a foster carer. And I never described myself as a foster carer. I was a foster mum, yes. and that might sound very semantic, but it is. It was really important. No, it's important. Yeah. And I, I now feel really yeah. bad for using no, no, that, that, no, no, that language. That's the, that's, that is the title I had. And that's what local authority would call me. I, am a, I was a foster carer, but I always just introduced myself as a foster mum. I didn't go into fostering to, to foster. I couldn't make my own children. I was with a partner when we actually got the kids. We were, I was with, with John, my ex, and he's still a huge part of the, the kids' lives. But we couldn't make our own babies. So we were both lived and worked in the world of, of, of health and social care. You know, we were getting, I was getting on a bit. So it was kind of like it was the IVF stuff. And I was like, I can't do, I can't, I know I can't do that. So there's more than one way of getting kids in the house. You know, we knew the system. We wanted to foster or adopt. We were really clear that we just wanted to to give home a home to the kids who needed the home the most. Anybody who's been through the fostering assessment will know there's one hideous part of it. And, and it takes a long time to become sure. a foster carer. There's one hideous part of it in the form, the F1 form, it's called, um, where there's a, a, imagine an A4 page with probably font 10 or 11, maybe it's 11, with three columns of types of problem. So it starts with, says like, um, blind in one eye, blind in both eyes, missing one limb, product of rape, product of incest, death. So you can imagine this whole list of things and you have to say, which of those would you accept? How far down that list are you ready to go? And, and I was like, Goodness we me. were just, it was, it was, it was a hot, and I cried. I just cried. I just kept saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. And we, and the social worker, very lovely, lovely man, was going to say, okay, you know, what are you saying? I'm saying, we kind of looked at each other and went, what we're saying is that if, if we had our own, you wouldn't have those choices. Hmm. So you get, you, you get what you get. That's the joy of having babies is you get what you get. We know we're too old to get a baby. We're, no one's going to give us a baby. That's fine. But we just want a kid. When you say what kind type of kid, the, the small people who are not the grown-ups, you know, and and, and we'll just take whoever because there's genuinely nothing in that list that I say we couldn't deal with. That's not the important bit of it. You know, the important bit is is this bit, the heart bit. 
So once they realised that we would take, literally, the conversation went, so you could take, you'd take any child then? You t- would you take a disabled child then? And we're like, yes. I don't, know if, went, I don't know whether to laugh or cry no, I know, here. But it is quite, this it, is... You have to laugh because it's just so <laughs> awful. And it kind of went from the sitting down and saying, well, the whole process will take a couple of years, probably. Da, da, da. It went, <laughs> this was January. It went, okay, well, there's Sam. Um, and funny enough, we had him by July. <laughs> because it was like, They'd had this kid who they'd been trying to find a home for for 18 months and he was headed out of area to a specialist unit, age 10. So we were like, yeah, that'll be him then. But the interesting thing that continued to play out, so we didn't get him in July, we got him in December, I beg your pardon, but we didn't meet him until the July. And they could not get their heads around the fact that we couldn't say definitive yes until we'd met him which to me was just ridiculous. All we had was a sheet of A4 paper with sort of two thirds filled with information about him. I call him the, you know, the milk cotton details, you know, like missing <laughs> child thing. You know? And I'm like, yeah, he sounds great, but, but we might not like him. He might not like us. He's 10. <laughs> and they're like, well, what is it? What is it you're anxious about? You know, is it his behavior? No, 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 none of those things. It's just that thing inside your heart that makes you go, yeah, this is going to be my kid. And they really struggled, really struggled. In the end, I just kind of, I threw a bit of a hissy fit and said, you know, can we not, can we just go and watch him play at playtime? And you know, don't, don't introduce us, just can we just go and watch him play? And at least then I'll get a, a sense, you know. And in the end, they did say yes. And we both had that moment. We both talked about it afterwards where we said, if there was a child in the playground that we had to pick, we would have picked him. So it was, it was perfect, you know, it was lovely. What implications does that have for you as you welcome, at this point, one new person mm. into the family? Because if you're part of the birth family, then you you go on a journey with diagnosis and development of yeah. the condition, and you think, oh, right, crumbs, right, yeah. we've got to sort all this out, yeah. and I've got to learn about it. But for you, it happens overnight. overnight. Yeah, literally. <laughs> and we talked so, about so that a lot. No, that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it was really, really weird. And I can still picture it because we were we moved house because his reputation was so huge that we felt we lived in a little Barrett box and we thought he'd be too noisy and too... He wouldn't cope with a small amount of space, so we moved. We moved to the countryside. God, I moved to the countryside. So and I moved. Did you have help to do that? I mean, that's an expensive no, no, thing no, to do. No, right? we did all that. No, we did all that. So we, we bought a new house and spent two weeks making it ten-year-old boy-proof. You know, so we took out the, the cream carpets and put down wooden floors and got his bedroom sorted out and stuff like that. And then then he arrived, and it was a Friday night, and he came sort of six o'clock, and there he was, and we just and we just kind of sat, and he went straight to his bedroom. And he was like head down doing his stuff, and. And we just, John and I just kind of sat on the sofa and went, okay, we appear to have a child in the house. <laughs> I don't think he's going home. <laughs> and it wow. really was the strangest of feelings. I don't think, that night I barely slept because I was kind of, we actually had it, we actually like things I can't believe now. We actually had a, a baby alarm in his in his room because we were just anxious about being able to hear him and make sure he was all right. And I mean, it's, it is fascinating, yeah. but it was a really, really bizarre experience. We yeah, We went to having a fully formed human being at 10 years old, you know, with ideas and opinions and, and a way of living his life already to slot into our house. So, so yeah, it was initially very, very strange. It wasn't very long before I couldn't imagine him not being there. And then when you get the second one, I think families go, oh, my God, any family will tell you as a second child. <laughs> so much, some greater than some of the two parts, you know. It's yes, like, yeah, yeah, I've heard whoa, that, yeah. you know. And then we were like, what did we do? We just had Sam you know, how did we, yeah, we just had, must have had so much time on our hands because now, you know. This is, this is a, maybe a funny question because um, you've been describing lots of things about love and welcoming mm-hmm, into family mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so on. Um, 
but there's also some practical things. So, so how did you manage to keep your professional lives going right. while all of this was going on in the background and, and you needed yeah. to... That, it's a big shift in completely, availability, completely. right? We, we quite quickly made the decision that John would stay at home. So he became a stay-at-home dad because it was crazy because we were both working um, and it just didn't... It really quickly didn't work. So we just made it so that he would be the person who stayed at home and that worked an awful lot better once there was one of us at home. At that point... My mum actually moved in when we'd had Sam for six months. Wow, okay. So, so that's how uh, long ago, the... that's how long she's lived with us. So yeah, yeah. So, so he only knew six months of it just being the three of us. Then she moved in. So what was it that prompted her to move in? There was always the conversation we had with mum, always with mum, not with dad, about, um, there's a very lovely Lionel Blue story where he says there's a, there's a uh, man and a woman, um, older couple sitting on a bench and the woman says to the man, yeah, when one of us dies, I think I'm going to move to Bournemouth. And my mum was always a bit like that. Yeah, when one of us dies, I think what I'll do is. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and she always talks about getting a flat. And, um, and so when my dad did die, the, the summer before we got, the summer after we got, uh, got Sam, out of the blue, she said, I think I'll come and live with you, darling. I'll have a caravan in the garden. Right? Didn't see that one coming. That, that, that doesn't sound like no. a dialogue. No, no, it wasn't. No, there was my, yes, so my mum didn't really do dialogue. She did instruction. Um, <laughs> always, always. And I was like, okay. Um, so, so mum, first of all, no to the caravan. Because, you know, first of all, we live in a conservation area, so they're not going to say yes. And second of all, just no. So we kind of went, okay, if it's, if it's definitely what you want, then, you know, can some of the sale of the house go to building an extension to our house and, and, and you know, make that work. So, of course, definitely, of course, that's what I'll do. You know, okay, fair enough. And she was very, you know, she was driving, she was fit, she yeah. was, you know, so she was a genuine support. It was lovely. I was going to ask, did, yeah. was it helpful to have an extra pair of hands yes, in the house? definitely, definitely. I mean, odd in lots of ways because I hadn't lived within 350 miles of her since I was 18 and then suddenly sharing a house, you know, we worked really hard to give each other plenty of space and she did have... John used to call the bit between we turned the old utility room into what John called the airlock <laughs> between her, her, bit of, her bit of the house and our bit of the house. So, um, but yeah, all the stuff you have to do about kind of learning how each other's routines work and listening to the podcast from last week, Emma's podcast, she said something that really sparked a memory for me. She talked about when her mum moved in, treating her like a guest. And that absolutely resonated with me. So I, I didn't treat her like a guest, but I turned into the perfect daughter. Oh, wow. So I, I had to be the perfect daughter. So I did. And she was very able. Yeah, she was only 78. She drove. She was perfectly fine and fit. I did all her cooking, all her cleaning, all her washing. And I turned her into a person who had nothing to do but watch daytime television. Did that put a lot of pressure on you? It was completely self-induced. So yes, but it was a choice. I didn't see it at the choice at the time completely, but it was a choice. But it was interesting because it only... And I still I tell people about it when I'm when I'm I'm teaching around around real wealth because what I didn't realise was that that she felt really useless because I wasn't letting her do anything. And it was only when John and I split up and John left and I was suddenly having to, to do everything that I had to say to her, Mum, could you just nip to Sainsbury's today? Is there any chance you get the ironing done? Yes, of course, darling. And then suddenly I saw this because she was amazingly smart. You know, she read the she did the Telegraph crossword every day, for God's sake. You know, and I was and I caught her watching Jeremy Kyle. You know, it's like, brother, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> But I'd done that to her. You know, I know that I work in the world of health and social care. I know that one of the most important things that human beings need is to feel needed. So actually, it was something that I took with me right until until she died, even the, the week before she died. 
lying in bed, bless her, she said to me, you will let me know if there's anything I can do, darling, won't you? Absolutely, mum. Absolutely, I will do, you know? So I think it's a really, really important thing that we need to be aware of as we frame caring and support roles is that we don't turn that person into someone who is just being cared for. And I loathe the word anyway, because I don't, you know, cared about works really well for me. Yeah. Regular listeners to this podcast <laughs> will know that we've we've gone round in circles about um, some of the language that we use to describe carers. So Emma, yeah. who we spoke to a few weeks ago, is really clear that we are carers. Mm. But you take a different line. Yeah, completely. So I said I, I never was a foster carer. I was a foster mum. I was a daughter. I, I am a daughter. Everything about it was about me just being, being my mum's daughter. I care about her. Therefore, it was really important to me to make sure that she continued to get a great life, even when she couldn't manage on her own. Can you walk us through that journey? So, so she arrived with you, yeah. um, a big support in around the house, and, yeah. and then increasingly you, you cared about her uh, in more practical ways. <laughs> so our relationship changed, on. yeah. So our relationship changed, and it's funny how lots of the milestones have just completely gone. I guess I can't remember when she started using a stick in the house. I can vividly remember the, her having a hospital admission and the occupational therapist in hospital saying that she needed to walk with a frame and her bringing the frame home and refusing to use it for at least a year. And then suddenly she was using it and saying, oh, this is so much easier, darling. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so it, was, it kind of felt like just very ordinary, somebody needs a little bit of extra help. And, and, I, and I fell into, I fell back into the, I will be the one who cooks everybody dinner. But so that was all very ordinary, very ordinary. And it was, I'm trying to think how long ago it was when I made the phone call to, um, to, to get her, the, the initial, because that's been planted on my memory, to make that first phone call of ringing social services duty team to say, need to organise some support for mum. We started our conversation talking about the excitement, perhaps the intrepidation, but the anticipation of uh, Sam joining the family mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago. And I wonder if you could go back now and say anything to yourself and John about what comes next oh and how to God. prepare. <laughs> what, what, what would it be? Would you have any oh, advice for yourself? Oh, man. Um, I don't know what I'd say. Just, I think, roll with it. I'm not very good at rolling with it. It's not my strength. John's very good at rolling with it. That's why we're not married anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if we'd both... If I'd known, no, let's own it. If I'd been able to roll with it a bit more, just take the rough with the smooth, take the, particularly with the kids, you need to do that. And, and I sometimes, because I need to have order or, you know, control and control, I need to have control. Um, I'm not very good at letting, just taking things where they need to go. So I think a little bit more rolling with it, a little bit more just being time, definitely. And anybody who's ever lost a, uh, a mum or a dad will tell you or anybody they loved I guess will say just yeah the times when you just sat and was sitting with them and just being and chatting were the most invaluable ones just and I think you know it's it's almost ridiculous to say but yeah I, I, I would say that's people just hang out and be with them more just don't worry about the odd bit of you know clearing up not being done. You very conveniently led me on to our uh, final three questions which mm. are uh, one when you think back about uh, your relationship with your, your mum, what's a really fond memory that you hold, hold close of your times with her? I think when she first, when she first moved in, actually, and, and she 
because I would have said the same about the kids that, that you know it was that kind of moment of them getting arriving that was just such a moment of joy but actually when mum moved in and the first night she spent in in her room she wasn't effusive my mum she didn't I said she didn't show emotion but she said oh, this is lovely this is lovely <laughs> and that was kind of the, the best you'll ever get from mum <laughs> just like very lovely darling thank you thank you it's like, very lovely Good, lovely, and and we we got a curry that night, and I said, and, and she would, war generation, you, you didn't buy takeout food, you, still, you know, we never did that stuff, you know, so she would never. I don't think my mum and dad ever had a takeaway in their lives. I said, should we get curry tonight, mum? Well, that'd be very lovely. Yes, we could do. Yes, should we do that? Let's do that. And that, and just that kind of, if I, I was sure a bit we'd done the right thing. That was that. So it felt really good. And it was lovely for Sam because Sam was like, you know, Granny's, you know, because he hadn't known, we called my dad, he called my dad Popper. He hadn't known Popper for more than a couple of months before he died. And that was, so he was a bit confused by that. It was like, okay, but Granny's going to come and live with us. Yes, Granny. We also like to talk about those those moments that make you giggle as well. And I wonder if there's any times <laughs> that you look back on and you think, goodness me, that was crazy or, or something that makes you laugh. So it's, it's very inappropriate, but I'm going to tell you anyway. They're so, the best um, ones. So when my mum was dying, the night my mum died, imagine sort of early evening on the night she died. I didn't know she was going to die that night. I knew we were heading up, but it, I, I thought we probably had a couple more days. But I was sitting with her all the time and my sister was upstairs. Anyway, so I'm sitting with, with mum. So mum's, mum's bedroom was the front of the house. Yeah. About 11 o'clock at night, Lucy comes downstairs and she's not light-footed. Bang, 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 bang. Sam's asleep. My sister's asleep. Bang, bang, bang. Puts her head on the door and said, Bohemian Rhapsody, watch it. Okay, darling. So she goes to the lounge, pops on Bohemian Rhapsody, <laughs> fairly loud, because she does everything fairly loud. And I'm just like, and I just, so I had this moment where I felt like I was in the kind of scene of a Mike Lee film, <laughs> where my mum then starts chain stoke breathing. So I realise that she's dying and I've got Freddie Mercury <laughs> blasting up for the airlines. <laughs> and, you know. Luckily, it kind of makes me laugh and cry, but it was just like it was so surreal, but so indicative of my house. Yeah. And it would have made mum laugh. Well, thank you for sharing that. Mm. Um, and you also said uh, at the beginning of our conversation that Sam is looking to move out into the big, big wide world yeah. and, and Lucy thinking of similar things as well. So, so what's next for you guys as a family? So it's a, it's a huge regrouping. So just becoming, just becoming Sam, Lucy, Trisha is hard. Yeah, mum's lived with me 13 years. Yeah, for certainly ten, nine or ten years, I've not been on my own in the house ever because she was always there. So the first few nights were really hard. I still sit in the lounge and look to the right where her chair was to say something about what's on the television to her. So regrouping is the first thing and just making that all right and, and, and allowing that to take as long as it takes, which I think I hadn't anticipated at all. Why? I thought I would be immune from grief. I don't know. And then, yeah, Sam looking to get his own place. That's huge. Lucy certainly... That's not what she wants to do. But what I'm hoping is Sam really does. So he will, she will watch him get his own place, get support around him. And hopefully, you know, we'll go and visit him and she'll see that. And I'm hoping that, you know, in the next, you know, certainly the next couple of years, she'll get that that's what she might like to do. She's actually talking about university. So that might be the next thing. Again, that's another whole podcast. So, um, <laughs> and then Lord knows what I'll do then. Well, <laughs> what well, earth will I do? <laughs> well, we wish you all the best. Um, and uh, we're, we're really, um, it's been a real treat to hear your story. So thank you very much for, for sharing it. And, and we'll, we'll follow your story as, as it goes along. Thank you very much, okay. Tricia. Wow, James, I think that was really, really interesting. Just a, a perspective I really hadn't thought about in a, in a while. And I, 
I bet she's going to have a full-on Christmas from the sounds of it in her house. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I mean, there's so, so many different uh, elements that are coming into play there. I, I feel like Trish is sitting there um, both as a mum and a daughter, but also almost like a project manager, supervising so many different little chunks of the, the picture clicking into place. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think it's almost... I know I, I definitely found, like, when I was... I suppose in more of the difficult parts of being uh, a support to my mum, the project management aspect of being a carer actually was the bit that I found quite easy. And you kind of almost you concentrate on doing that stuff just because, you know, you can do it. You can sort stuff out rather than some of the more difficult kind of emotional bits which you have to deal with. So, um, yeah, really interesting. And of course, the other part of that is that the the emotional stuff is important, but sometimes feels less urgent. Hmm. Whereas the project management stuff is always feeling like it's uh, urgent as, as well as important. So I guess it kind of gets priority um, quite a lot. Um, and, and of course, as part of that, you kind of get wrapped up in all of the form filling and the bureaucracy of, of it. Cairo, how did you navigate all, all the, the forms and so on? Yeah, she mentioned the F1 form, which uh, thankfully I, I have never had to encounter. But... Um, I'm sure many of our listeners would have gone through the PIP process, which is the personal independence payment assessment. Um, and it, it honestly is one of the most horrendous things that I think I, I had to do um, in, in my role as a carer. I think for several reasons. Firstly, it's just a horrible form. It's you know 30 pages long. The questions are really intrusive. Um, and it's, it's really quite horrible having to detail all of the difficulties you suffer with at a really personal level. So I was supporting my mum and, you know, it's things about uh, using the bathroom, sleeping, suicide. And it was just, it was horrible having to, to really just spell things out and, and, you know, having to almost justify your uh, disabilities in order to, to kind of get the benefits that you're entitled to. And I think some of the forms just make you feel like you're a number. There was, you know, there's no humanity in it. Um, and I suppose there's a bit of advice that I, I got speaking to um, a lawyer who specialised in this is really to try to understand what they're looking for. You have to play the game. You know, at, at the front they say these are the five things we're looking for, and you have to make sure every one of your answers is leaning towards one of those five things, and and you have to be tactical about it. I think you're absolutely right, Kyra. And of course, one of the big things that we're focusing on at Mobilize is, is sorting out carers' assessments, which, um, you know, really valuable exercise to go through. Uh, but at the same time, that we've got to make sure that that's a really positive experience for people. Um, and actually filling out page after page of a form uh, is very often not actually a very helpful way to, to access some of the information and so what we're trying to do is turn it into a bit more of a conversation mm. uh, and kind of play up those humane elements which you you mentioned. Yeah. I wanted to pick up, um, so I, I asked in the, in the interview there about this amazing piece. So uh, I don't really understand very much about um, the world of fostering, but I just think it's an incredible um, journey that Trish has been on where first up, you know, moving house to, mm. uh, to, to make things right for her son, which is a huge... Um, uh, step to take quite suddenly, but then also kind of incorporating her mum into that situation as well. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I think, I mean, shout out to all of the incredible foster parents out there. It's a, you know, it's incredibly difficult. Um, 
and it can often you know bring incredible joy but and really you know but be quite tough in lot in lots of ways and i just think it's such a beautiful thing that people can can go through so um i only ever have aberration for anyone who who, who gets into fostering and probably something that it's quite easy to forget uh when you're in the midst of it but that actually you know there's a really inspirational uh commitment going into that kind of thing that um that really matters mm. uh and it's important yeah and then i thought when her mum moved in what really resonated me when she talked about the airlock between the two parts of the the houses um and i think you know very fortunate that you can have that space and i think space comes with independence and i know some of the carers that i i speak to actually not having your own space for many it can, it can be a real problem and actually part of what they do to keep themselves sane is going and finding that if they haven't got out of the home they're going and finding some space whether that be sitting in a park or going for a walk finding that space somewhere else so yeah sometimes you can love people so much that you don't want to see them for 20 minutes of the day <laughs> well i'm i'm sure that's true and the the other piece that really uh, chimed for me was that the idea of having somebody in the house but almost disempowering them by do, doing everything for them so trisha meant uh, described this about her mum and how um, how actually her mum wanted to be helpful and to do the washing up, do the ironing, whatever it might be. Um, and that actually gave her almost a, a purpose for her activity rather than just sitting and watching Jeremy Kyle, which she found her doing. <laughs> yeah, the telegraph crossword to Jeremy Kyle. I thought that was a great soundbite. Yeah. That was uh, perfect. But uh, we, we all want to be needed, right? And that's, mm. that's, that's a big part of it. So I can, yeah. I can kind of understand it. Actually, what I thought was really um, insightful was Trisha worked in social care and she knew purpose was important and be needing to be needed, but she still kind of slipped and had to kind of check herself and slipped into it. And you think, you know, if somebody who works in social care can so easily fall into those traps of trying their hardest and, and maybe it not being exactly the right way of going about it, you know, the average person who hasn't got training in, in being a carer, you can see why so many people do that. Um- Really powerful language, though, about the difference between caring for someone and caring about somebody. Yeah, interesting. Um, for the 400th time, James, we can discuss whether we're carers, not carers, cared for. Uh, it definitely yeah, comes yeah. up. <laughs> no, I, I actually really resonated with the way that she talked about it. Um, I think, you know, I am my mother's son. I do it because I love her. I don't do it because I'm her carer. Um, so, yeah, we can discuss the semantics behind the, the language, but actually... You know, the way she said, I, I, I did it as her daughter. I care for her because I'm her daughter and I want her to have the life that she deserves. I thought that was really, really beautiful. One of the striking things that's coming up as a bit of a theme uh, in the interviews we have is how sometimes there's an event um, and, and it's very often strokes or TIAs. And we, we've mentioned that a couple of times. Mm. But actually, the other way into some of this is how things just evolve quite quite slowly. And I think Trisha's story is, is one of those latter ones where th- things happen quite slowly and, and, and it can be ha- quite hard to notice some of the big changes that are happening uh, in, in your relationship and in your, in your setup. Yeah. And it's funny, my mum walks with a stick. And I, when I was listening to the interview and she was saying the, the similar thing, and I was trying to remember when there was a time before my mum had a stick. And I remember, you know, we went out stick shopping and we were trying to find the one that, you know, she didn't want one of those kind of old metal plasticky looking ones. Um, and we were trying to find the one that she felt comfortable with because it was a big step 
but once you know, once you'd been using it for a couple of weeks, she was like, "Oh my god, I should have had this years ago." Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think things like sticks, you know, I suppose it's that visual visual clues to somebody's um, often hidden disabilities can can be quite a step for someone to take on a on a real personal level. Mm. I thought the the interesting bit with her, the advice she gave, I um, she said, you know, it's really important just to be able to roll with roll with things. And I think it's really, it's a really powerful ability to be able to kind of roll with things and, and kind of just go with it. But actually, I suppose there's been times when I've tried to roll with it and it's probably been detrimental to my own health and well-being. And I think there are times when it can be really hard just to roll with it. And so for me, it's the, there's, a, there's a balance between the two. Just, you know, I, I'd love everyone to be able to be these super relaxed, chilled people who can just be like, yeah, that's life. Um, but I don't think we should hold ourselves up to standards that we don't necessarily been able to maintain. Um, we can't, you can't always roll with it. You know, there'll be times when things become incredibly frustrating. And yeah, Christmas coming up, I can already feel myself, you know, preparing for frustrations. And I think, you know, I think we we also going along with rolling with it is is a sense of giving yourself a little bit of a an easy time sometimes you you know recognizing and allowing yourself to get angry and frustrated because it it can be tough so and it's uh, it's okay to need help right yeah exactly exactly and one of one of the things that I think is really powerful and so easily forgotten is that uh, there are eight million people just in the UK who are looking after somebody in some way or other and uh, who every one of those 8 million people are really finding it difficult at times and that we're, as a result of that, no, no one should be uh, feeling alone as, as they're doing this. Yeah. And they're, and they're, on, they're on your street. They're on your, they, they live on your street. There'll be people you walk past in the shops. I think, if, you know, as a community, we should try to reach out. Absolutely. We, we ought to get some window stickers. Who cares wins stickers to say you're you're part of the club? Um, <laughs> Bumper stickers, yeah. Well, well, that's it for um, for this episode and indeed for this series. So thanks to everybody, including Trisha, who's uh, shared their stories, everyone who's been uh, listening in, uh, and everyone who's been sharing on social media. It's been really good uh, to hear those stories and to uh, to engage with everybody. So thank you for that, and um, yeah, look forward to the next series. Yeah, no, I think. I think we've both learned loads from listening to and, and speaking with carers and hopefully it's been useful for people out there listening to some of the stories. Um, you know, we're still really trying to commit it to building this community. So if you haven't already, head over to our Facebook Who Cares Wins uh, page, join in on the conversation um, and we look forward to the next series, next year's 2020, James. Yeah, big deal. Time is flying by, 2020. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, so from us, happy Christmas and a happy new year. And you'll hopefully be hearing from us soon. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. 